Gray, I am ruined. Why are you ruined, Mike? I got upgraded to business class. <laughs> well, well, well. You know what I'm going to expect? I'm going to expect a big apology because you and many other people always give me grief about flying standby but I didn't and trying fly to schedule standby. things to get an upgrade to business class. I'm not saying you flew standby, but you now have tasted the sweet, sweet nectar of business class. Mm-hmm. And, and you're telling me that you're ruined. So now I'm imagining you can understand why someone might make plans around even the mere chance of getting business class. If, this, if it is statistically proven that it is more likely for you to receive business or upper or first because of flying standby. Oh, it is. The way I fly, it okay. is. Then I can understand now. Mm. So I was in the airport waiting to board. Where were you? Where are you flying from? Where are you flying to? From Dallas to London. Okay, that's a pretty long flight. So I think on the way there, it's 10 hours. On the way back, it was like eight and a half or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in the airport. I, I like to be very early in airports. Very early. I like lots of time. Yeah, that's the only way to be. Drives everybody that I know in my life crazy. But like, for example, for this flight, I made sure I was at the airport like four hours before. Yeah, that's reasonable. I like that. I like to just take my time, but other people think I'm crazy. No, no. It's This is the right way to do it. My feeling is like we can wait at the airport or we can wait at home. We might as well wait at the airport. Good. I like that. Do you want to know my theory for this? My thinking? What? If you catch a bus or a train, you could just get the next one. That does not work so well no. with planes. <laughs> no, it does not. You cannot just get the next one. <laughs> like, that, that is not a thing that happens. Yeah. I'll just wait at the gate until the next one pulls up. No, you won't, sir. You will give us another $1,000, and then maybe mm-hmm. if you're lucky, you'll get there next week. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. So I was uh, getting ready to board. I was, I was sitting at the gate and, you know, it's like they were like, put, had an announcement go out and they said a bunch of names and they said my name. Please approach the desk for an important message. And I was like, oh, no. Mm. What have they done? Like, am I not going home today? Went up to the lady, gave her my passport. She had like a real stern face on. She typed in a bunch of things. She gave me a ticket. She's like, you've been upgraded to business class. Thank you. And I was like, I expected the first time this would happen to there to be just a little bit more fanfare, you know, like even just a smile. <laughs> like mm-hmm. she just didn't care. So, but I I cared very much because I was very excited about all of this. Um, so, business class is amazing. I flew with British Airways, mm-hmm. so it I basically had a bed that I could make up for myself. Oh, okay, yeah. So this is the thing, like business class varies wildly between airlines and also just between the model of planes like some business classes you get screwed and what you really have is economy plus from 30 years ago yeah but some business classes you get a space seat and so it sounds like you had one of those this was this was an older plane so it wasn't super fancy but i had like a little pod type area there was like a divider between me and the two people that were on the other side and I had a regular chair that had buttons that could basically recline me. Mm. And then it could go real down flat. And I had this foot thing that I could bring up. And I was able to sleep mm. on the plane only for a couple of hours because the time was a bit weird. But I got two hours of good uninterrupted sleep, mm-hmm. sleeping on my side. 
as I like to sleep <laughs> on a plane, Gray. See? I am ruined forever. Yeah. Now you'll never want to fly again unless it's business class. See, so this is my thinking right now. Is I've been flying more and more recently in economy plus or premium economy, it's called in some places. I've been flying more and more like that because it is just far significant for not too much more money in some cases. Yeah, and especially for a tall guy like yourself, it really makes a difference. Yeah, you get the extra space, the cabins are more empty. People with babies, for some reason, don't seem to often buy Economy Plus tickets. Like yep. That alone is is worth it. You get, like, metal cutlery to mm. eat your food with. Like, you, you basically feel more like a civilized human. And less like cattle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm luckily in a position where I, for a lot of the trips, I can afford it or their business expenses. So, it, you know, works out for me. But now I'm thinking more about like for the really long ones, could I maybe fly business class coming home? Mm-hmm. That feels good because going there, you're excited to go. So it doesn't feel so bad. Thinking maybe coming home, a lot of the flights were like red eyes. Could I get a few like, hours of sleep? It will improve my life significantly. So for San Francisco, I'm definitely going to do it. <laughs> and uh, flying with a friend, and we're considering doing that together and doing Virgin and therefore going upper class. <laughs> Does Virgin call it upper class? They only have upper. That's fantastic. <laughs> Way to own it, Virgin. <laughs> Their premium economy is incredible. Like, it feels like you're in a plane in Mad Men. All of their air stewards look incredible. And they bring you, like, champagne when you're getting on the plane. Ah, it's fantastic. It's the way to fly, Gray. And now I'm ruined forever. Because I wonder what it's going to be like past that curtain. What this sounds like to me is you need to grow Relay into a much bigger company so Mm -hmm. that you can always fly upper class maybe i can set a goal for that you know i think it's uh in emirates where you can actually get like a room with a double bed have you seen that yeah i've seen that stuff i've seen that stuff the thing with emirates though they, they have these crazy rooms and they're like thirty thousand dollar tickets you know like it's it's ridiculous luxury but all i can ever think is it looks so tacky because they really like gold accented everything <laughs> so i look at those things and like thirty thousand huh. dollars even if i had it to spare like i wouldn't want to be surrounded by that much tacky gold it just looks gross i don't like your design aesthetic i've never really looked into them very much because emirates tend not to fly to the places that i'm going Mm-hmm. You know, they tend to go the other way a lot more. Right, yeah, of course. But yeah, so you're ruined forever. You need Relay to earn more money to fly business class. <laughs> Speaking of which, mm-hmm. our, our dear listeners can can help us fly business class when we go for our acceptance speech for our campaign. Oh, right, of course. Of course, you've been very busy, Mike. I've been very busy. We have t-shirts. We have Grey Hurley 2016 t-shirts available. Um, we were working on a design... This is this is a little bit of the backstory of how uh, this T-shirt came to be. We were working on the design, and I was showing you the designs. I was going to say, what really happened here is you surprised me with the T-shirt design. I yes. was minding my own business, and you sent me a design for yourself. Which I really liked, mm-hmm. and we worked on developing it. And then we had two colors. We had a white and a blue. And we, we only wanted to do one color, because that was going to be our campaign color. And we we weren't sure what to do. So you suggested to me... Why don't you put it to a Twitter vote? Mm-hmm. And then I got really carried away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you seem to run 
like a bunch of runoffs and mm-hmm. you know there was oh, a lot was of great. public deciding for the design of the gray hurley 2016 shirt and what we came down to was we we are doing a blue t-shirt a couple of different shades of blue um and there is a there is a men's a woman's and a unisex long sleeve t-shirt so the men they have a men's and women's short sleeve and a unisex long sleeve mm-hmm. which we're doing with teespring um but we've got something a little bit different this time that we've never done before. I've never done before. There's a link in the show notes that you can click. Um, and Teespring have been really good to us. And they've set up distribution from the US and the EU. Oh. So it should reduce shipping costs for most people outside of the US. Mm-hmm, um, this mm-hmm. is something that, I don't, trust me, I feel this because I buy all of these shirts from the US. But they've, they've hooked us up with this. If there's like a special link that you'll find in our show notes... And it does it by geolocation, and it works out which one to which campaign to send you to. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll be able to buy one of our great T-shirts and support the campaign. These are only available until April first, so this is the only time you're going to hear us talk about this. So if you want one, you got to go buy them because they will only be available until April first. And I think they look great. I think they do look great. Yeah, you had two emojis drawn yep. up. That custom emoji. And for me, yes, custom emoji. And yes, if people want to get their hands on the gray Hurley 2016 shirt, if you are hearing the sound of my voice right now and you have just recently downloaded the episode, you need to get in gear, click the link in the show notes, and grab the shirt before this campaign season is over. We had a lot of people say, why is there no gray shirt? And they expected that there would have to be a gray shirt. Campaign is blue. You you endorsed the blue, right? What I endorsed was if you're having something that looks like a presidential campaign logo, it has to be red, white, and blue. There's yep. like there's no there's no choice about that. It's got to be red, white, and blue. There we go. You don't have presidential campaigns where someone is running a gray color. That just doesn't happen. People thought that I was getting carried away without your blessing. Well, I mean, you kind of were. Like, I came back after some instant message conversation to discover that you had run all of these various votes on Twitter. Like, I I had, I was actually involved in some other things we will talk about later. And I just came back to my phone and it's like, oh, Mike's been busy. Yeah. So, yeah, you did. Yeah. I mean, like, they're not, they're not wrong. I got, I got carried away, but within the constraints, you know, I just really went to the edges of those constraints. For there were no constraints. I told you in instant message, you know, you go, you go right ahead, Mike. You, mm-hmm. I know, I, I. I, I trust you. You asked me for some feedback. I made some suggestions. I, I there were no constraints given. Don't don't radically portray this in a different way from the way it actually unfolded. You know, if you're going to be my running mate, I I trust you to make these kind of decisions. But I am going to complain when I don't like the look of it. So that's what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. That feels like a, a president and VP situation, I yeah. think. You can do whatever you want as long as I'm okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how are how's the search for campaign headquarters going okay listen i know what you're trying to do here right <laughs> i know what you're trying to do here because listeners in the show notes the thing that we are going to talk about next is my further adventures in finding an office finding an office for me oh, right? oh, sorry, as I- usual Mike's trying to hitch along here. Because they were together in the show notes, I thought you were connecting them, you know? No, I was not connecting oh, them. Oh, okay. No, so, they are yeah. separated by several carriage returns. Mm-hmm. There's no way 
anyone could actually confuse these as related topics. They are just, I'm just a simple related topics. No, this is a this is the next bullet point, not connected to the previous bullet point. Today's episode of Cortex is brought to you by PDF Pen Pro from Smile. You've heard me say before that PDF Pen is the Swiss army knife for PDFs. Well, PDF Pen Pro is the knife with so many tools that it can barely fit in your pocket. PDF Pen Pro has everything that you're going to need. The ability to add signatures to PDFs, edit text and images within them, performing OCR on scan documents so you can use that text in other places, and you can also export your PDFs into Microsoft Word format. But only with PDF Pen Pro can you create an interactive PDF form, build a table of contents for a PDF, set document permissions, and convert websites to multiple page PDF documents. PDF Pen Pro 7 also allows you to easily export into Excel, a PowerPoint, and PDF archive formats if you'd like to. And you can even create PDFs of web pages and add tool tips to your PDFs for voiceover accessibility. The list of features just goes on and on. This is a powerful piece of software. I love PDF Pen Pro. Um, I am a user of it. I am a lover of it. It has everything that I'm ever going to need. Some features that I just need once in a blue moon, but when I need it, I have it. And that's what I love about it. You can try the free demo of PDF Pen Pro 7 today by visiting smilesoftware.com slash Cortex. PDF Pen Pro 7 requires Yosemite or later and works great on El Capitan. Thank you so much to Smile for their support of this show and Relay FM. So, actually, I am not looking for a private office because I currently have an office. <gasps> yes, I know. Look at this. Yeah. Are you in it? Uh, not right now, no. Okay. I'm in my house right now. Okay. But, um, yeah, you mentioned last time on the show about, like, surely there are services that can try to help you find office space. And long story short, that is essentially what I did was I was using like a website that specializes in trying to find people office space instead of just interrogating buildings or searching around and just trying to find things, uh, which was not working super great. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, it's it's been interesting because, um, you know, when you are searching for anything, you have a bunch of criteria and... Whenever you're having a hard time finding something, you know, like one of your criteria has to give. And so, as mentioned last time, I really, really, really didn't want anything that was not within walking distance. And that is already such an incredible constraint about like, what is the exact area that I want an office in? Then you add in a couple of other things that I wanted. And it's like, oh, this is going to be a hard thing to find. So the thing that had to give was, of course, price. So uh, I do have this private office that is in a, a big building, but it is very expensive. So I have, for the moment, I have only signed a lease for six weeks because I, I need to make sure that this is a place that I am actually going to use, that I'm actually going to work at because otherwise the fixed cost of this office is many multiples of the co-working space in mm. which I currently am. And so it is one of these things where it's like... Will this be worth it? Will it not? I don't know. I've been uh, working there for, well, let's see, what's today? Today's Thursday. I just moved in 
uh, four days ago. So I've been going there and and, uh, working there a little bit in the mornings and in the evenings. And it's been going well, but I need to make sure that I'm, I'm actually going to very, very efficiently use this space. Otherwise, it will not be worth keeping. But this is the progress so far. Oh, would you like to see a picture, Mike? Mm-hmm. I should show you a picture. Make sure you remove the geo tags from the picture so I can't show up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Morning! <laughs> I brought you a coffee. I was one step ahead of you with that. You think I'm ever going to share with you a geotagged picture of my office? No, of course not. Here, let me show you a picture of what it looked like before I moved in. Okay. And I'll, I'll, uh, these will be appropriate for the show notes. They so, will be. Yeah, I think this will be oh, fun. Oh, wow. Look at that. Is, that. is that very exciting? It is. What if there's, is there a window? You don't want people to like spot landmarks and then. You know, I can imagine someone with all the pictures on the wall with like string connecting them and stuff. <laughs> I specifically selected an office that has no windows. I did not want the distraction of a window. That is uh, that. Okay, this is a sad. <laughs> this is a very sad looking office. <laughs> Paint a word picture for the people, Mike. That basically, it looks like an interrogation room. I think that's a little harsh. <laughs> no, there are two tables, there's a lamp, and there's no mm-hmm. windows and a fluorescent light. That is very mm-hmm. interrogation room-like. It's uh, just a square room, there's two chairs, there's two telephones. There is some obscure artwork of a building on the wall. Yep, generic corporate artwork. <laughs> it's not lit very well, This this office. No, it is not. No, it's not. Um, and there is a, a cup of coffee sitting on the table, and there is like a cabinet in the corner, mm-hmm. I guess. Have you done anything to make the office feel more homely? Did you paint the walls gray or something? This office is set up for theoretically two people up to four people, which I find no, slightly horrifying. That is impossible. <laughs> that is Im- impossible. You couldn't. Let me. How? Let me... <laughs> Let me tell you, I mean, like, the the place where I'm standing to take the photo, there is a tiny bit of space behind me. But what you could do, and what I have seen other offices in this building do, is put four desks all around the perimeter of the wall, right? So you could get four people in there. So that's nice. You can just look directly at the wall. (laughs) Right. Or, in the current setup, you can look directly at the person who's sitting directly opposite you. It's... We discussed office layouts once before on the show, and and this building that I am in, it's, I don't know, it's like 10 stories tall. All of the floors are nothing but open office spaces, Mm -hmm. and there's an elevator that I can take up where you happen to be able to see into all of the floors. And so just like I go up all the floors and you see like these endless, endless open offices. This one floor happens to have this section that's carved off for individual offices, but from my perspective, all it is is it's the same thing, but again, on a smaller scale, where every private office that I walk into actually has two to six people crammed in what seems like a terribly small space. And like, it's still fundamentally an open office. As far as I can tell, I am the only person who has a private office in this whole place because I rented their smallest one, which is for two people, but I rented it just for me. So there are other people that have these rooms, but they have more than one person in them. Yeah, yeah. There's There are two people or four people in a room this size all working together. Uh, but so, yes, Mike, I did spend quite a while 
making it much more homey. So would you like to see what it looks like now? <laughs> yeah. I'm just anticipating that all it is is your computer's on the desk. <laughs> like, that's the only change. <laughs> oh, no, they're radical changes. All I right. spent a whole day, a whole day moving stuff around. That that definitely feels like the productiveness that you're looking for, you know? Get an mm. office, spend a... Okay. What? Okay. Um, Paint a word picture, Mike. <laughs> okay, I, do you know what I can? If you look at the first photo... And mm-hmm. you imagine that all of the office furniture in that photo is actually a transformer. Mm-hmm. And in the second photo, it has taken on its fighting stance. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Because all you did, <laughs> you just took the furniture and put it all on top of each other. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, first of all, most importantly, I took the painting off the wall. Because oh yeah, where is who that? Who needs that? No, where where it is is it's in storage in this office place. I got okay. rid of it. I was like, I don't, I don't need your painting of mm-hmm. a building or your photo of a building. Like this is gone. There were two desks. Now this is this is my attempt. Like the whole reason I have this office is that this is my attempt to make like a little mini Amsterdam situation like we have talked about on the podcast before where I have a space where I can regularly go and I write. And one of the Mm -hmm. key things about the way that I most effectively write is I pace back and forth and I talk out loud and I type. Yep. Right. So what I don't need is a desk to sit at. I'm at home right now where I have a desk to sit at. Like there are plenty of cafes in London where there are places to sit at. I don't need another place to sit at. So I took the one desk and I stacked it on top of the other desk. And then I set it up as a standing desk. So I have my keyboard is on the first one at standing typing height with a little bit of a stand. And I have my iPad Pro is on the top desk. So that is at eye level for looking at what I'm writing. And so this is now a space where I can walk back and forth. I have this set up all in place. And I don't want any pictures in the room. I don't want anything in the room. I was trying to spread it out over a period of time so I didn't seem like too much of a weirdo to the people running the office. But I was like, uh, can you take out all the phones? And like, uh, can you take out all of this other stuff that you have in here? Can you remove the garbage can? Like, I won't be needing the garbage can. And they're like, okay. Um, I just wanted everything out of there except the very few things that I was going to use. And so I'm uh, pretty happy with this. I could also see that like, having the floor space for your pacing nature is good, right? So pushing all the furniture into one corner, basically, Mm -hmm. is is good because you can move around a lot. Mm -hmm. It's just some little parts that I want to dig into a little bit more. So what is that circular thing? Uh, On the bottom desk? Yeah. That is a speaker. Okay. That is connected to the iPad via Bluetooth so that it can play thunder sound noises all the time when I'm in there. So it's like an imaginary thunderstorm that's taking place in the room when I'm working. I recommend the app Thunderscape to accomplish this. It's very good. That's... Hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you're in a nondescript building Mm -hmm. with no windows in the room that you're in. Right. On your own. Mm -hmm. The thunder sounds playing. Mm -hmm. I need some kind of white noise. I need some kind Uh, of white noise whenever I'm working. I'm just saying, I don't know if anybody has ever described you as an evil supervillain before, but you're really plain painting that picture for them now. No, this is just an accessibility <laughs> issue. Uh-huh. I, I have tinnitus. I need to have some kind of white noise. I can't be in a silent room. 
I could just imagine somebody walking by your room. Something makes you laugh, right? Mm-hmm. And they hear the thunder. <laughs> and they're like, is Dr. Frankenstein renting a place here? <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Very interesting. Why thunder? Why not like rain or whale music or anything Whale like that? music. Oh, you got to be kidding me. No. Yeah, no. That's not, that's not what I need. That's not helpful. That's not helpful. Uh, I find like thunderstormy rain is just good. It's just in the background. It's easy to to kind of forget that it's even there. So it's that's what I use. Okay. Like I don't like some people use waves and things. I don't like that. It's too periodic. It's distracting. Thunderstorms. That's what you want. Hmm. It's not a lot on that iPad. Uh oh yeah. So there's an iPad which is on the top. And is that an iPad Pro? That is an iPad Pro. Is it the iPad Pro or an iPad Pro? It is the only iPad Pro that I own. <laughs> I see where you're. I see where you're trying to go with this. Just checking. <laughs> no, I only own one iPad Pro, and I got a little stand for it so that it can be uh, mounted vertically on the desk there. And I just have my couple writing apps on the main screen. It's a it's a perfect office setup so far, anyway. I'm gonna just attempt to drive the listeners crazy here. Mm-hmm. You can kind of make out the apps. <laughs> We're not going to talk about them today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's some new ones in there, but we're just not going to talk about it. We'll leave it for another time. Some people will notice some new ones in there. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I didn't even notice that when I sent it to you. I should have down-resed it further. But um. <laughs> Oh, I like that you can kind of see. We'll come back to that. There is some stuff that I want to talk about, but I want to mm-hmm. build the intrigue. We mm-hmm. gave you sleep on the calendar. Mm-hmm. Now we're giving you something else to worry about. Mm-hmm. Whilst we're talking about office spaces and closed offices, mm-hmm. I took a trip to Facebook Last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. A friend of mine comes over from San Francisco who works for Facebook, and he invited me to go visit the London offices. Mm. You would hate it. Oh, my, would you hate it. Yeah. Is it open? Oh, it's it's as open as an office space could be. Well, I, I'm, I would expect no less from Facebook because they had that... Uh, I am reading the article about their new headquarters that they built, which is the largest open floor space in the world my buddy works there he says he gets like five thousand steps a day just trying to do his job (laughs) god so uh, so when you tell me that london has a big open office space i'm not surprised yeah it's over a couple of floors but like i got went in there and there were four people really enthusiastically playing ping pong Mm -hmm. like really enthusiastically playing it was no joke Mm -hmm. um they had a couple of floors they had snacks everywhere Mm-hmm. We had lunch at the canteen, which is like completely free food, and there was like sweets and stuff. It was great. But everybody where there was like working spaces, it was just like rows and rows of desks. It was interesting to me because everything was really cool and fancy and it looked lovely. But when you look at the desks, there's just nothing you can really do. It always just looks not that nice. Yeah, it's always just going to be a computer and a flat surface. Like, that's just what you're going to have. Yeah, and, and it's just, it seems funny to me. It's like, you can spend all this money and time and effort into, like, creating these great spaces. But the actual places that you sit down and work, they're just rows of white desks. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. And, and it was just interesting to me to see it. Now, hopefully, when I visit San Francisco next, I'm going to go and take a look at the Facebook office there. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to see what that one looks like as well. Yeah, I would be very curious to see that on the inside as well. Yeah, because I can imagine it's everything I saw last week turned up to 11. (laughs) Yeah. But I can't imagine you thriving in an environment like that. I just don't think I would be able to do good work 
in an environment like that. I mean, I would just have to be doing some kind of very different job in order to do work. I saw a lot of people in kind of corners and things like that, like on beanbags and stuff. Like it seemed like there were a lot of people that were like, I can't work in these banks of desks. Mm -hmm. Everyone seemed really spread out, mm -hmm. even though there were all these desks, but most of them were empty. People were in other places. Yeah, th there have been, um, let's just say there have been big open office environments that I have been in where I have noticed the same phenomenon. Uh, like there are tons of desks there's clearly personal items on all of these desks. Uh -huh. And as far as I can tell, every available space that is not a desk is the space that people are actually using to do work. Yep. Like if they can get away from their desk, they are going to. Uh, and I think like, well, isn't that interesting? Maybe you company might want to take note of this. <laughs> it's like if you, if you have other spaces for people to work, they will work there. They will not work at their infinite rows of white desks with computers in front of them just to like just a thing to note companies just saying so the the plan the plan mike with this office is that i'm going to be writing here and so for the moment what i'm doing is i am trying to treat this very much as like a holy like a sacrosanct place mm -hmm. like i'm taking it very very seriously the idea that you go here, you're only going to do one thing, which is pacing and writing. And when you're not doing that, you're going to leave. So this, this feeds back into what we were talking about on previous episodes, that I am trying to teach my own brain, to train my own brain, that like this is the thing that happens in this room. Nothing else happens in this room. We don't do emails here. We don't look at Reddit here. We don't do anything else, which is part of the very reason why I didn't even want chairs in the room. Like, I don't want the option to sit down because if I need to sit down, I can do that plenty of other places. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to establish this and I'm trying to build little little routines like when i'm walking towards this office there's a there's a certain landmark that i pass when it's like oh when i pass that landmark if i'm listening to music or podcasts or anything like it has to go off like we have to get ready as we're approaching this place to start doing the work and like all this stuff i think like it sounds kind of crazy but i'm just i'm trying to be super strict about it in the same way that like i was really aware that in that amsterdam trip it was very easy to feel like i'm being very serious about this and kind of taking away my own decision making ability now whether or not this works is a question that i will only have the answer to 6 weeks from now so we'll have to see in the future like does this work uh, because if it's just another office space, then it doesn't make sense for me to continue to rent it. But I am I'm trying to be very, very yeah, sacrosanct about this little writing monastery that I have, at least for the time being. So we'll have to check in later and see how it goes. Are you just writing? No research in that room. The short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is that... Uh, I do let myself take a look at if I have some stuff in, say, Evernote, or I do have some notes files um, that I like to access sometimes when I'm writing. But I am not allowing myself to go out on the internet on like a fun fact-finding mission, right? Because that can just end up taking forever, and it's not the same kind of thing. Um, 
like as I have discussed before, the bottleneck for me is the writing process. And like anything I can do to get more high quality writing out in a month is good. Mm -hmm. And so like that is what will make this office make sense. And again, so far, just for the first, you know, four days that I've had it when it's super easy, but it's been great. Like I get up early in the morning, I walk right out, I go straight to the office and I just start writing immediately. And it's like, this is what I need. There's nothing in the morning to interrupt. Like there's nothing to go wrong. I'm just going to wake up and walk right to this place and just try not even to think about it. So, so far so good, but it is over the long haul that really, that really matters. Because what I was going to say is, why don't you just not connect to the Wi-Fi at that office on that iPad? I already had a little conversation with the receptionist at the front desk where they're like, oh, we'll sign you up for, your, for, for our telephone and internet package. And I had to explain to them, no, I don't, I don't want your telephone or internet package. And then that was one of the many ways in which I draw attention to myself when I'm really just... This is what I'm saying, right? <laughs> You don't want connection to the outside world. You moved all the furniture. You took down the picture and you play thunder noises. People must think you're like evil or crazy. Let's just say like the I don't want the internet was just one in a sequence of things that I was like, I really don't want to be drawing attention to myself. But literally everything I'm doing is drawing attention to myself. Like I just want to move in nice and anonymously. Um, <laughs> day one, the manager comes in at the end of the day to see how I'm doing, and he takes one look at the place and he goes, "What are you doing in here?" Like, and at this at this point, at this point, I like I had pulled up part of the false floor to get at some of the wiring because I wanted to hide the telephone wires that were coming in. Like, I don't need to oh see these wires. Word. Like, I just want to put them back under the false floor. Like, I don't need these wires. <laughs> it's just, it wasn't. Uh, it was like, I just want to be anonymous. Please don't walk in here right now. Like, just, I'm just going to come in and I'm just going to leave and I'm going to talk to nobody. Like, you never have to worry about me office people. Like, I'm just here doing my own thing. Playing my thunder noises. This episode of Cortex is also brought to you by Hover. Quite simply, Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. It's my place of choice and has been for years. It's the first place I think of to go when I have an idea for a new project. And in fact, just yesterday, I bought two new domain names with Hover for projects that I am thinking about under the hashtag year of less brackets me. I might not do anything with them for a very long time. I might not do anything with them ever. I don't know. We'll have to see what ends up happening. But what I do know is that I came up with two great names that I really wanted to grab. And so the first thing I did was I went to Hover, checked that they were available. Indeed they were, which is always exciting. And I got them immediately. And what I like with Hover is that when you want to grab that domain name, you never know. There might be somebody else in the world at this very moment also trying to get a domain name. But if they are using one of the other registrars, it's going to take them a long time to do it. With Hover, you can get that domain in seconds. It's just simple. It's clean. It's straightforward. You know what you want with Hover. You want a domain name and they let you get it easy peasy. 
While they have all of the domain names you would expect, they also have just tons of the little ones and the funny ones like .coffee and .limos and all the weird things that are there. The domains that I registered happen to be one of the smaller uh, domain names. So it was nice to be able to do that just through Hover. They have who is privacy for free so that you can keep your private details private. There's a hover valet service where if you're using an inferior registrar, you can get everything just moved over to hover automatically in a way that you just don't have to care about. Hover will take care of it all for you. And they have a new feature called hover connect, which makes it easier than ever to get your domain name connected with a website. So if you have bought a domain name and you want to connect it to some other service, like you want to make your Tumblr blog use the domain name or whatever, you can just have Hover use that automatically for you. Have everything connected up behind the scenes. It's great. It's simple. So right now, go to Hover.com and use the code CREATIVITY at checkout and you will get 10% off your purchase at Hover and show your support for Cortex and all of Relay FM. There's tons of stuff that Hover has. I only talked about a little bit of it, but they're what I always use to register my domain names. So thanks to Hover for supporting the show. I think this is probably the first time this has happened. Uh-huh. In between our two episodes, you released two YouTube videos. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. What happened here? <laughs> Amsterdam happened. <laughs> Yeah, partly. Like that's that's actually that's actually no joke. Like uh, I was able to move both videos forward quite a lot during that period of time, uh, and it just happened to work out that uh, they were both finishing up around the same time. And you know me, if I have something done, I just want to release it. So they were finished a week apart, so I released them a week apart. There was the video, um, the the second part to the uh, America Pox video, right? Uh, which I I really liked that video. I have to say. I've seen that video now about four or five times for various reasons. Um, oh, excellent. Let's get that view count up. Yep. I think that might be one of my favorite videos of yours. It's interesting It's interesting you say that because I'm not sure. I think that the the section which is the very end of that video, the zebra section, like zebras versus mm-hmm. horses, I think that might be the best thing I have written to date. That particular section. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is like my favorite video that I've ever made. I wouldn't say that. I still think uh, "Humans Need Not Apply" is my favorite thing that I have done. But that little section about like horse herds hierarchy and like all the zebra stuff, like mm-hmm. I think that just came out amazingly. And without a doubt, that was all done in Amsterdam. Embarrassingly, my favorite line from the video, which nobody appreciated, but I just loved was uh, the line about, for zebras, there's no such thing as society. When I came up with that in Amsterdam, I literally did like a little fist pump to myself (laughs) in the hotel room. I was like, that's gold. Like, I love this. That's amazing, right? Um, I was super excited about that. Like, nobody commented on that line. (laughs) Absolutely nobody. No, because that wasn't the gold of the video, man. The gold is top chicken. (laughs) Everybody loved top chicken. And nobody loved my, for zebras, there's no such thing as society line. Like, if you go back and you watch that video, you can hear me really sell there's no such thing as society in the reading. But it's like, nobody cared. (laughs) This is where you just never know what people react to. That delivery of top chicken. Though. That's what <laughs> no we're top chicken. And it zooms in on the gray face. Perfect. So that that's why I think I like this video is there were lots of little flourishes um in the delivery and the animation 
that I really enjoy. And I've spoke about these on this show before, like the things that I really like, are like the visual jokes that tie up with something that you're saying. And there were a lot of those types of things in there, like the way that the llamas were jumping out of the pen and, and mm-hmm. a lot of the stock footage that you used really tied up very nicely. I, 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 there were just lots and lots of little parts of that video that I really enjoyed. And the more I watched it, because it's quite a complex one, um, the more the more times I watched it, the more times I understood what was going on, and also enjoyed a lot of the little details. Yeah, I have to say that one I'm I'm pretty pleased with. I probably haven't been as pleased with the release since the Netherlands video I did. I mean, many years ago now, where the, the Netherlands one was the first video I made where it felt like, oh, this was just smooth sailing from start to finish. Like I had an idea and it came out pretty much exactly the way I wanted. And and this one. It wasn't smooth like that, but it is most of the time when I'm releasing a video, I feel like, oh, thank God, like this is over and it's done and I can just put it up online and I will probably never watch it again because I, I kind of cringe about it. But this one I, is one of the ones where it's like, oh, no, this is this is great. Like, I'm pretty happy with the way it came out. Like, it, it worked out well in the end. And so it's up and I'm it's like it was much more of like a happy day of like, oh, well, I'll release this to the world. Uh, and then also people will stop yelling at me for the second part of the Pox video, which I was getting a lot of on Twitter. I cannot believe that you got it out as quickly as you did. You never know with me. You never know what's going to happen. I was expecting at least two more videos before part two. I like to keep people guessing. Mm-hmm. You know, keep them on their toes. And then you released the Star Trek Transporter video. Yep. Which I know is one you've been working on for a very long time. Yeah, really long time. That one's been in the been in the books. Uh, these two videos are actually quite similar to me in some ways because both of them are are not so reliant on my drawing anything. Like the America Pox Part 2 is largely uh, stock footage. And then the Star Trek video is entirely uh, the artwork of Knut, who I've worked with on several projects before, including the Lord of the Rings videos and uh, the single transferable vote video. So both of these have a very, very uh, different style. But I I wanted to look today and think like, oh, when did I really get started on the Star Trek video? And I went back into the the Slack that I use for people that I work with. And I got the first concept drawings from Canute on October 11th for the Star Trek video. Was the very first time uh, I had approached him and I asked, I want to do something on Star Trek. Give me a couple of visual styles, and he dropped something in the Slack. I mean, what is that now? Like four months ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long, long time ago uh, from uh, from the current day. So these things are in in progress for quite a while. So I mean, this answers one of the questions that I had, which is: Would you consider doing more videos in this style? Because this animation, oh my word, is so fantastic! It's just superb. Yeah, Canute does an amazing job without a doubt i mean that's that's why i like working with him. his depiction of you i i love i love it <laughs> you know like just the the giving that character more life and making it more human it's not an easy task to take something that is a stick figure and then say how are we going to represent this in a more fully fleshed out way while still keeping what is recognizable about it, but he totally succeeded. Like, even more so than that, taking something that is iconic in its own way. Mm -hmm. Like, to the people that are familiar with you and like your work, the the way that you 
portray your character in the video is a massive part of it. Mm-hmm. And he really evolved that character mm-hmm. um, just excellently. Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. That, like The life that he brought to it, Like one of my favorite parts is when um, you're crying on the sofa. Mm, like in the yes, fetal yes. position and it's mm. like that is such a great depiction yeah i just thought the whole thing was was fantastic that that uh, right there is a great example of like okay so people want to know like oh why did you use this different artwork like why didn't you do it yourself in your own stick figures for both the star trek video and for the domestication video they, they had the same thing in common of man if i was going to sit down and actually try to draw out these videos in some way There are many parts where, one, I just simply wouldn't have the artistic ability to do so. And two, where both of these things just require a level of detail that you could not do in stick figures, right? It is just simply not possible. And this is the same reason why I went to uh, Canute to do the Lord of the Rings video, because... When I was going through that one, I thought like, oh, let me do a, a video about Lord of the Rings. And I want to talk about Ents and Elves and men and Hobbits and all this stuff. And I realized really quickly, like, you know what? You can't do this with stick figures, man. Like, it just, there's not enough that looks visually different. And so, uh, once again, for the Star Trek one, when I was thinking about doing this, it was th- it was the same thing all over again of, I was originally going to have much more of the crew and talk about specific examples. Like, that's how it began. And I was like, I can't draw stick figures that are obviously the different captains like that's just not possible to do in my usual style so it's like i have to bring on someone to to do this and so that's that's what some of the original concept artwork was was i had canute giving me like various characters of like how would they look uh what you know what are we going to have this look like on screen because there's no way i can adequately with stick figures have two rikers and uh just as the as the project went on uh, I eventually realized like, oh, I, I like this artwork so much that Knut and I came to an agreement where he was going to just do all of it. Like, like we're just going to make this 100% your artwork up on the screen. And I think it came out really well. It it did. I loved it. Like the, the, the actual topic, I'm not a Star Trek guy, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I understand enough about it. I've seen the movies, mm-hmm. uh, but it, for me, it wasn't really about the topic it just all the the design and just the the way that everything looked it really really made it work it really worked in a different way to to how your videos normally do it was just very different very refreshing i think and and I, i really enjoyed it i wish that there could be more like it but i know how hard it is to do you know yeah well i mean this is this is one of these things because when i eventually came to the conclusion of like oh I can have someone else do all of the artwork instead of trying to think of mixing this with my regular style and and his drawings and say like, oh, let me just entirely have someone else do this. My initial thought was like, oh, well, this is going to be a huge time saver, isn't it? But the end answer was like, no, it's not actually a huge time saver. There is the potential for it. And and the reason I I think that is looking at mine and your working relationship um, and how that's developed because we collaborate on this project mm-hmm. and over time um, we've learned each other's preferences in the way that things should be done like I think right. that if you're willing to put the time and effort into it it could be possible that somebody could do the work for you and 
especially if you know the thing that you're best at and the thing that takes you the longest is the writing you know then you could focus completely on that and have somebody else help you out with the artwork so i was thinking about this and it's like okay the way that i was currently working was we were going back and forth about the art you know he was sending me stuff uh almost all of which was like it's amazing do more or we like have a back and forth about how things should be represented and 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 the rest of this and ultimately in the end what i got from knut was about a hundred drawings uh vector drawings for the various scenes but even then the the additional thing which takes up a huge amount of time is that he is not the animator I am still the animator. And so even though I have these drawings, because they're vectors, each drawing can be broken down into the various elements. And then I am animating the various elements. So anytime something moves on the screen, anytime something fades in or fades out or has a wobbly effect or whatever, like I am doing all of that. And so what I have sent you so that you can see and will be in the show notes uh, for the listeners is what the video looks like on my end to animate when I'm working with it in Final Cut Pro. And so while I start with 100 drawings, in the end, there are probably somewhere between, you know, maybe 200 to 400 animation elements of where I'm saying, okay, this transition happens now, this special effect comes on screen, this image transitions into this other image, this guy moves from point X to point B, Uh, here's a sound effect that is going to play underneath what's going on the screen. So even though all of the artwork was done, I was shocked by how much animation work there was still to do even after this point. So if, if I was ever to try to completely outsource all of this, it's like I would need an additional person to be the animation person. Like it's it can't just be the artwork because it's it's surprising. You think like, boy, 100 images, it sounds like a lot. But if you just have the images on the screen over the course of four minutes, like it's not actually nearly enough action that's that's taking place. Like you need to have more going on to keep it interesting. Hence all of all of the motion or all of the transitions or all of the effects. A little later on, well, in a moment, we're going to be talking about Creativity Inc. and, and mm-hmm. focuses on Pixar, which is a movie studio and an animation mm-hmm. studio. It's like you would need to, and it's not impossible to do this, have like a mini version of that, right? So like you would come up with the story, you would maybe do some storyboards and then have an animator, have like an artist and an animator put them together for you. Yeah, well... There is a world in which that could be the same person as well. Yeah, there is a world in which that could be the the same person. It's The thing is always, it's difficult to find people talented in one area, let alone two areas. Sure. So sure. by trying to find someone who is an amazing illustrator and who also is great at doing animation work in Final Cut Pro, like, that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Which is why I just say, like, I, I would say, like, oh, I'd be looking for someone who is good at animating which is a a different skill yeah but yeah of course like i i am never under the illusion that like i am somehow like a magic person who is doing unreplicable work like most of the people i know are working with teams like it's it's interesting and weird that like there are i know very few youtube people who don't have teams around them at this point like i am i am one of the the very few people i know who is genuinely a one 
one person YouTube operation at this scale yes. um, who doesn't have employees like permanent full-time employees um so it's an it's an interesting position but it's just as with many of these things like i because i had never uh had this much artwork done before i had i had falsely assumed like oh this is gonna be super easy to put together and like no it is still it is still not uh easy and so like if you wanted to ever outsource it like you need one more person to to help with this i would bet that it still took up less of your time in the aggregate but it maybe didn't feel that way the question is did it take less time than it takes me to animate an average video the answer to that is no like it took the same number of days plus the back and forth with Canute spread out over a couple of months like there's no there's no way that it took me less time but the but the real question is if I didn't have the artwork done and I attempted to do this all on my own that would have taken me months and months of work so there is a way in which this saved me a huge amount of time in the in the same way that like getting all the stock video for the domestication video like if i tried to animate that that would have been months and months of work instead of four days of animating so like i there's a sense in which i saved a lot of time sure but not like actual number of hours out of my working schedule like it's a slightly different question you know i love your work but like there's you couldn't have done this no, no, of course not. You no, can't. I have no skill whatsoever. Like you couldn't even come close to it. Like, you, no, you wouldn't be able to do it. And yeah. I'm looking at it now. One week, 1.4 million views. Yeah, it's pretty good. Maybe it was worth it. <laughs> I think like that. I have to have the right topic in mind for this kind of style. Like, I don't think. I don't think that I could just generally say like, "Oh, I'm always going to do videos with." all of this artwork like if i'm ever doing something that has anything to do with countries i always want to use the country girls that i have like i just i love the way that looks i think that's a real signature style at this point like i'm always going to want to do anything that has to do with countries using those particular stick figures okay um but i can but like you can see the commonality between the star trek video and the lord of the rings video is is both of them it's like there's more detail than can possibly be represented with stick figures and so if i come to that situation again if there's a topic that i'm working on where that feels like it's the case i will definitely definitely think about doing it again i hope so i, I miss I, I haven't got a name for him but i'll miss that little cgb gray maybe he'll come back someday i hope so I would like to also thank Igloo for helping support this week's episode. Igloo make the internet you'll actually like. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have the tools to create an internet that looks and works the way you want. It looks and works the way that you're used to, with the way that you're used to using the internet, rather than looking at something which looks like it was built in the 90s by somebody who obviously couldn't see into the future and had no idea how we'd be using our computers. Like, for example, now we're able to do work wherever we want with our phones and tablets and laptops. Igloo works on all of them. It has responsive design, so it's going to work everywhere and you can do everything. You can manage your task list from your iPhone. You can manage your projects and speak to your colleagues from your Android tablet. It doesn't matter what device you're using. If it can connect to the internet, you can use 
igloo talking about design you're able to customize it give it the look and theme and colors of your company so it feels right at home in your organization you're also able to turn on and off different pieces of functionality for different members of your teams so you can give them just the tools that they need you can share files of your co-workers for you all to collaborate on you can track who has read documents with read receipts this is super useful for making sure that everybody has seen that important document that must go around the company you can also integrate with services like box google drive and dropbox so people have access to all of their files wherever they need them wherever they are igloo is secured with 256-bit encryption single sign-on and has active directory integrations as well so it's going to integrate perfectly into your organization the best thing about igloo is that you can try it for free with any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want so you can make sure that it's right for your team and your organization it's time to break away from an intranet you hate. Sign up now at igloosoftware.com slash cortex. Thank you so much to Igloo for their continued support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so the second Cortex Business Book Club is now in session. It's time. It's time. So we read Creativity Inc. Yes, you picked this book this time. This is a book that I've wanted to read for some time, um, but never gotten around to it. But then when it came to be my turn to pick a book after the tragedy of uh, the E-Myth Revisited. Mm. I decided to go for a book that I really enjoyed the thought of. Uh, I'm a big Pixar fan, mm -hmm. so I was very intrigued to, to read this. So I did. I listened to the audiobook, uh, the unabridged audiobook. It was much longer than <laughs> E-Myth. Uh, like twice the size, I think. Um, but I got through it all in like a week and a half. Yeah, it's like 12 hours in audiobook form. I think. Yeah, something like that. Uh, looking through my notes, I originally read this uh, back in November 2014, mm -hmm. according to all of my Kindle highlights back when I was still reading books on Kindles with their appalling typography. And so I hadn't read it since then. And I also, uh, I re-listened to probably about 80% of the book uh, this week on audiobook. And then I sort of skimmed the last few chapters as well. So I reread it recently, although you may have some uh, more detail towards the end than I do. And uh, I also have all of my notes from last time. It's a funny experience to reread a book like this because I'm listening to it in audiobook and I think, uh, I, I read it the first time, right? But I'm listening to it in audiobook now. And I'll hear the author say something and I'll go like, oh, that's an excellent point. And so I open up my Kindle app to highlight <laughs> that section. And I realize like, oh, right, two years ago, me thought the same thing and highlighted exactly the passage I'm going to highlight. Uh, it's just a funny experience. Like, oh, look at me and past me agreeing on what is an interesting point. <laughs> You're so clever, me. Yes, me. <laughs> yeah. Don't we agree on the importance of this passage? So smart. Yes. But so tell me, Mike, you as this, this is your first uh, experience with Creativity Inc. What did you think of the book? It wasn't completely what I expected mm -hmm. and, and very different um, to other books that I've read like this because it was a lot more biographical. Mm -hmm. um, Ed Catmull tells his story and through telling his story, hits upon some of the things that have been important in helping him build and manage and run Pixar and now Disney Animation. Mm -hmm. So it was unexpected, but I think I enjoyed it more because of that. I like biographies of people that are interesting mm -hmm. or people that I respect. Um, and whilst I have only known a little bit about Ed Kempmore from, from other books, mainly Apple books, 
mm-hmm. because there's a, obviously a big crossover. Right, right. Um, I respect the company so much that he was basically, it was kind of like the biography of him and Pixar together. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, there's a ton of of early Pixar stuff in this and also like where where does Ed Catmull come from? How did he end up to be in this situation? And also there's a lot of Steve Jobs related stuff in this, especially the uh, afterward. That whole section is basically Ed Catmull telling his story of Steve and mm-hmm. why the stories that have been out and circulated aren't about aren't the full picture of the man mm-hmm. it's a fascinating part it's got nothing to do with the creativity part which is why it lives right at the end it was a good place to put it but i could tell like from him it was like i need to tell this story because i hate what everyone's saying yeah yeah it was it was a total total non sequitur to the rest of the book but it's like this is the most logical place to put this this section about what is what is his impression of steve jobs so in in a similar way to how we went through the last one, I'll kind of go through my notes so it kind of follows the book chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things, and tying back into the biographical part, is that this book is about a man who had a dream who achieved it, mm-hmm. right? The idea of wanting to make a computer animated movie, when he started out, it was impossible. You couldn't do it, but he wanted to do it and then did it. And and I love those kind of stories because I think that there is something nice in knowing that people achieve their dreams if with the right amount of work and effort. I think that that is a good story. I think it's possible. You know, I think that me and you have both done that to certain degrees. Um, I, I expect quite a lot of people listening to the show have people that have creative work. It usually tends to be part of a dream or a long-term goal. And I also assume there are probably quite a lot of people listening to this show that have one they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I think it's always good to hear these stories of people that have something that they want to do and then go out and do it. So this is a good one for that, as well as a lot of the lessons that, that Ed tries to teach. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And this is, this is a, a time to just interject... Uh, you know, since a lot, a lot of people after our last uh, book club episode uh, wanted to know, like, why the hell I would read a book like that, like the E-Myth Revisited and why I would read these business books, even though uh, people often hear that I, I don't have always great things to say about them. But I, I think that this falls into the category of, like, when you are reading, you are shaping your own mind and you are shaping, like, the kind of person that you can possibly be. And this falls into the category of like, if you want to do something different, it is useful to read about people who have done things differently, right? Like whether or not the particulars of their situation exactly matters for your situation is not relevant. It's a, it's a case of like showing your brain like, oh, okay, here's the story of this person and how he went to achieve an unusual thing and like here here is the way he did this and look brain like this is a thing to think about like i'm going to keep exposing you to this idea over and over again that like people can achieve things and they can they can reach their goals and like here's how here's how this person has done it here's how maybe that person has done it and you brain like pick from that what you think is useful but just be aware that like 
it's 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 almost like you want to create for your own single brain like a culture of success right like things things can happen well brain and just be aware of that and that's why i think these things are useful to read and why i've been reading them for you know many years at this stage camel himself is also pretty critical of business books which i like and and multiple points in the 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 book talks about why a lot of these types of books are pointless. Right. <laughs> Which I really like. He just addresses it and he's like, look, a lot of these things don't really help people. They're full of empty lessons. And like even at the end, uh, he kind of distills a lot of the things that he believes in into simple sentences. And he's like, these aren't statements that are true. They are what I think of as talking points and places to go from. So, like, mm-hmm. look at all of these lessons, these takeaways, as they would be called in other types of books, mm-hmm. as food for thought rather than just, like, lessons I'm trying to teach you. And I quite like that approach. I agree that that perhaps one of the values of this is not so much him telling you here's the way to do it as opposed to him describing lots of the other people he works with and how they think about things and it's it's a bit of a like when you are reading it it, he's just like throwing a whole bunch of stuff at your brain and maybe some of it will stick and some of it won't but you know he talks about like oh here's how here's how brad bird thinks about making a movie like this is not how i think about making a movie i think brad bird is wrong but he made The Incredibles, right? And so, like, you take from that what you want. And then he goes through a bunch of the other directors and talks about, like, here's how this person thinks about it. Here's how that person thinks about it. Uh, and, you know, it's like so- some of them think about, like, they're on an archaeological expedition and they're uncovering things. And others imagine it as though they are building a structure brick by brick. And he's just he's just going through how other creative people he works with think about their own work and like maybe some of that will resonate with you and maybe some of it won't but the book is not super prescriptive uh it, it's he doesn't have like a one two three punch for here's here's exactly what you need to do there i've kind of recorded in that vein a few of the things that spoke to me um of what he had instituted at pixar Mm-hmm. One of the clear themes that runs through this book is the idea of giving creative people autonomy to create. Mm-hmm. Like, provide them with the resources that they need. Don't try and box them in and let them see what they can do. And that's such an interesting thing to me. A lot of what I'm going to be basing my thoughts on is the companies that I have worked in and how different they are to the way that Catmull describes how he builds his company. And the idea of kind of like, and there's a lot of this, like give people challenges, see how they do with them. You know, he talks about hiring good teams and giving them good work and you will get great stuff rather than hiring like mediocre people and giving them things to work on. Like you're just not going to get the results out of them. And, And there's just a lot of give people the autonomy that they need to allow their brains to work and come up with something interesting. So I guess this is where I, this is where I have to ask you as the company man of the of the podcast. Yeah, Th- this strikes you as different from the places that you're familiar with. Oh yeah, hmm. yeah. Okay, so, because like this is uh, my rereading of the book. I was much less charitable toward it than the first time I read it. Okay, and and this was one of the 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 places where I kept thinking like, yeah, duh. 
like right well it's not like that yeah like it's hard to find creative people and when you find good creative people let them do what they want to do it's it like like there were plenty of times when working with canute where i was like i don't have specific instructions for you but like you just keep going like the whole reason i'm working with you is because you are talented like that's that's why we're here together right and like i trust you to do stuff so go like just just run with it man and so like when i was reading this i was feeling a bit like yeah, of of course, at Catmull, like, what else would it be? But it sounds like you know what else it would be. So I was working in marketing, right, for the company mm-hmm. that I worked for. So I had a semi kind of creative role mm-hmm. um, that we would help come up with the marketing campaigns along with external agencies that we hired. Yeah. That that totally counts as creative, though. Yeah. Like, in any role yeah. in marketing counts as a creative field sure but like there are different ones where we weren't coming up with the campaigns we weren't like an internal agency or anything like that Mm -hmm. we would have agencies that would help us so you would admit there's like two levels of creativity here um and there was a time where as i was leaving my company that another team somewhere had decided the 15 images that could be used in all marketing campaigns for the next six months like 15 stock images yeah and they said it may expand, but this is like the set that you've got right now. Now you are asking two levels of creative people to work within this constraint. That sounds pretty terrible. Yeah, and I know people that work at, in other advertising agencies, and this is a relatively similar thing. That maybe like a so it might be the like the me, and I know that I did this to mm-hmm. our agencies. I was like I gave them very prescriptive guidelines of what I was looking for with certain campaigns. So even I would put a restriction on those creative people mainly because i was being restricted in some way right right it's restrictions all the way down (laughs) exactly and so this is what i'm you know there are places where this will not be the case but i know this is the case in a lot of areas it is for a big company it is very rare for them to just do this you see it when he goes to disney later right um yeah he talks about how people that have never made movies gave mandatory notes and changes to the movies that they would see, the other executives. Yeah, that is true. That is true. You know, so it's like it, that shocked them when they went in there. And of course it did, because he thinks in a way which is not normal. There were many times in this book where I had to check myself because I would hear Catmull say something, be like, he's lying. There's no way they do that. See, that? See that's very interesting. That's very interesting um, to hear you say that. And I feel like I, I, I almost have to defer to your... Uh, your opinion here it's like i need your opinion to supplant mine on this one right because there were so many times where i was reading this and i just because of my experience in the last few years and the people that i work with and like how i know other people run their teams i feel like isn't it obvious that if you have someone who's a creative person like you you let them run with stuff like who doesn't do that <laughs> like what are you like oh wow ed catmull like telling me the sky is blue uh but but it's yeah it seems like i am in the wrong here and that I have a, a perspective which is like a tiny, tiny minority of people working in creative fields out in the corporate world. That this that you you are coming from the the side where you think this is so unusual that you assume that the author must be lying because no one would run their business that way. And I'm like, duh, man. <laughs> this is a view of mine, which is obviously not the same for everyone. But I right. just know that I went through this and I know other people that did. Like, I worked with people who'd worked for other companies and it was the same. 
Mm-hmm. And the, I think part of the problem is there's always someone who thinks or does know better. Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem, right? So it's like you're being told by someone, this is how the campaign goes. You know, it's like I would consider myself as a creative and I would show the work to a product manager and then they would try and make changes to it. And I would have to say to them, no, this is not what you do. I was very difficult to work mm-hmm. with. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> that's but that's that's why you're here right now. <laughs> yeah, my my boss really liked it, and and it was always something that she brought up to me to be like, you stand up for yourself in a way that nobody else does, just because I'm very. I mean, you know, snows. I'm just very principled. If I believe mm-hmm. in something, it can be quite difficult to change my mind on it. My mind can be changed, but if I truly believe in something, I will fight for it. And not a lot of people that were in my scenario did that, and it's because I believed that what I was doing was creative work. Like I believed that, that it shouldn't have just been prescriptive. One of the reasons I left when I did was because of the constrictions that were being put on people. You know, Mm. like what I mentioned about like the very limited images that could be used, right? It was like, no, I can't, I can't do this. This is Mm. ridiculous. But anyway, so like, it's interesting to hear about the freedom that they have at Pixar. And it seems like even in the animation world, that is not a given that you get that. I was just looking through my notes, and I think there's a, there's a section I highlighted here, which I think summarizes uh, a lot of his his points. But he's talking about like changes that he made within Pixar, and and uh, basically he says here, uh, going forward, the department's charter would be not to develop scripts, but to hire good people to figure out what they needed, assign them to projects, uh, and make sure they functioned well together. Uh, He says, we keep adjusting and fiddling with this model, but the underlying goal today remains the same. Find, develop, and support good people, and they in turn will find, develop, and own good ideas. This actually goes right back to what we were just talking about. If you bringing in people like Canute. It's like he is talented and is good at what he does. So you find people like that, and give them the work to do and see what they come up with. Yeah, but it's also like, like it's, again, this this to me is where I feel like my own opinion of the book is maybe not super relevant here. But in my own field, it seems like, like because this, this highlighted section that I have here comes after a long discussion about what matters. Like, is it good people or is it good ideas? And he has a big description where he talks about like bringing this up in meetings and people are really split. And that's the part where I felt like, Oh, come on, Ed Catmull. Like people can't really be split over that. Like it's obvious that the people matter more than the ideas. Like no, no, no one would disagree. Yeah. But the, the thing is like, I, I, I do recognize that I have some kind of bias on this, but, and, and if I think about it, I realize like, Perhaps the kind of compliment that I like the most on videos is when I see people leave comments where they'll say something like, I would have expected that this topic is really boring, or I thought that this would be really uninteresting, but I, like, I really like the video on this thing. And I think maybe that's, that's partly why I, I have this clear feeling of like, it's not the topic that matters. Like I know lots of people who make videos on topics that you would think are boring but the way they make it is the thing that makes it interesting. So it seems really obvious to me, like, of course people matter. But then again, if I think about it more, I realize like all day long, people want to pitch me on good ideas for videos to do. And it feels like, oh no, but it's not the idea that matters. Like it's the execution that matters. 
So I wonder if this book made a real big impact on you the first time you read it. Because you have basically said that to me at one point. Like my my kind of thinking about talented people came from a conversation me and you had maybe about six or so months ago. We we were talking about this, about the idea of finding talented people and how difficult that can be and how useful it is. Yeah. And you said like the book made a bigger impact on you the first time than it did this time. I wonder if like part of this stuff has been embedded into you and now you think it's obvious because you already read it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you I mean, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing for the listeners, which is the, the short version of of my thesis here that I have. Uh, let's say I, I have discussed with many people uh, in many different circumstances is that I, I am always trying to beat the drum of talent is rarer than people think it is, and that I, I often I often run up against people have some expectation that like there is talent just everywhere waiting to be found, and I don't. I do not think that is the case, but that is in no small part. Like I am totally aware that that idea was first dramatically and unwelcomely introduced into my brain through my years of teaching. <laughs> uh, like, oh, uh, <laughs> like some you know, kids, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah. Little Tommy's never going to be an astronaut. No, oh, poor Tommy. This is a battle that originally came out of my teaching days of much against my own beliefs going into things. Like I was forced to come to the conclusion that like, mm, you know, not everybody's a winner. Uh, like it's just, that's just not the way things are going to work. And that has been since extended into like the entertainment field, as we have discussed uh, on previous podcasts, is a bit of a weird special case. And it's uh, like even thinking like, Reading about the early Pixar stuff is very interesting, but I was also just so aware of like, yeah, but you just totally lucked out with your first three directors. Like Pixar had great people working on those first three movies. And if they didn't have unusually successful people working on those first few movies, we wouldn't be talking about Pixar today. Well, okay. So yeah, they did, but these weren't traditional movie directors. Like they were developed by Pixar, discovered by Pixar, given a chance by. So I think it's completely luck. Well, it's interesting because there's one part in the book where Ed Catmull addresses this exact thing, where their first three directors were not traditional directors. They're people that, that Ed was working with. And that when they started bringing on more directors, like he ran into this same thing of like, oh, I'm, I'm sure we can just like turn people into directors. And there's a little part in the yeah. book where he's like, actually, you can't. We tried <laughs> like, it and it was when he talks about the whole part of like trying to set up a separate part of Pixar, right? That That's working on what movie were they working on? Toy Story 2? I think it was I, I don't remember what it was, but but there's a few parts where and I'm just like you're trying to read between the lines a little bit because because Ed Catmull is is, you know, he's he's very nice talking about everybody. But you definitely get the feeling that like after their first three directors, they spent a little while like kind of floundering yeah. trying to bring the next people on. You and, notice and... <laughs> the point where he doesn't name someone when he doesn't give a name. He's about to slam them. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't slam them, but it's it's just like. How interesting you are, unmentioned brave director. Like, it's, yeah. you know, just like, who are you? Who knows? <laughs> there's, there's a few points like that. And, and so I, I guess what I'm, just, what I'm just saying here is like, P 
Pixar is also in an interesting situation where, by definition, they had to be really lucky at the start, right? Like, th- and that is almost true of any entertainment venture. Like, you have to be lucky at the start. And then I think the like the interesting fundamental question of Creativity Inc., like o- almost like the thesis of the book, is very clearly like, can Pixar survive the replacement of its founding members? Right, like those those original people who were on board, can they engineer a system that will outlast them? I like I think that is the heart of the book. Yeah. I think it's an open question about whether or not they have. Like reading through it the second time, I I felt very much almost like less convinced that they have accomplished that than the first time reading through the book. Like, I think they've given it the best of all possible shots, but they also still haven't had a complete turnover of the original people working there. And I was I was looking through some of their upcoming projects, and it's like, oh, interesting. You're bringing back Brad Bird to work on um, Incredibles 2 in the future. And so I was like, we won't know the answer to this question of will Pixar outlast the original team or will it, like Disney did, go through like a half century of wandering in the wilderness after their initial founder was was lost? Well, one of the funny things right now is that Disney is producing better movies than Pixar in some places. I think that is also the interesting context of reading this book two years later than when I first read it. Yeah, what what something that really annoys me in the book is they keep talking about failure, like we need to have a failure, we need to have a failure, but they don't address that. Like Cars 2 yeah, that, that was is... a failure, but they don't. he doesn't talk about it. Cars 2 is the huge elephant in the room of this book, right? There is... Because that movie was out and had flopped. I did a, a, a search of the text of like, did he mention it anywhere? And like, nope. There no, is no reference to Cars 2. And that's, it's really interesting to me because he, that throughout the whole book, they're talking about, like, we haven't had a failure. What will happen when we have a failure? Like, people are scared because they don't want to be the one responsible for the first failure. And I really wanted to hear the story of what happened after Cars 2. But he, it just doesn't get addressed. Yeah. I remember the first time I was reading the book, I thought, like, this has to come up. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that to, that to me is like one of the one of the little pieces of like, mm, I feel like they're like you're you're you have this big section where you're talking about candor and making sure everybody is really open about what happens. And there's there's no shame in anything. And yes, worrying about failures. And it's like you've got to tie this together with cars too like but he never does right it just never comes i feel that is like the direct result of nice guy ed yeah he doesn't want to throw the cars team under the bus in the book yeah and and the the other thing which is i i think this is more this is more subjective but so okay so here here's here's the running list for the movies so uh because i made a note of it in the beginning so Mm -hmm. this book came out after pixar had made 14 movies so here we go, right? It's uh, 1995 is where they start. So it's Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles. Then you have Cars at number seven in 2006, which is like maybe a little shaky, maybe not. I don't know. Then you have Ratatouille, Wally. Then it's Up in 2009, Toy Story 3, Cars 
two two years before this book brave one year before this book and monsters university is the uh, last movie that comes out before the book is published i gotta say like i think the second half of that list is weaker than the first half of that list monsters university i really like that one i have to say i really like monsters university precisely to look at this we're going to tie it back before because the fundamental message of monsters university is you can't always be what you want to be like sorry mike wakowski you were born not scary like you got to figure something else out no amount of studying is going to make you scary mike (laughs) you know it's like the dean is portrayed as the villain but she's not wrong like you're not scary uh, and I, I have to say, like, I think that is quite a bold stance for a movie to take as, as like, the fundamental storyline of, like, no, you're not going to achieve your dream. Yeah, it's, I think it's a good message because it's like, all right, you, but there is something that you could be really good at. You just need to find it. Accept this and move on. Yeah. Like, I went through my own version of this when I was younger where it's like, for a long time, I wanted to be a fiction writer. Like, I wanted to write novels. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time trying to write novels and... At one point, I had to just grow up and be like, you know what, man? You write some really shit fiction. Like, you just have to understand this and move on. I don't even want to know how many thousands of words like I, uh-huh. I, I attempted to put out. But it's like, but it's an important moment, right? To recognize that. Like, you're just, you could spend from now until the end of your life trying to write a novel and you will never succeed. So, like, recognize it and move on. So, I, like, I, I, I like that at Monsters University. I think it's a rare movie that kind of goes against that goes against the the grain but it is but so the question about like pixar as an entity that can survive in the indefinite future producing great movies now the the thing that we have to mention is even though i think the second half of that list is weaker than the first half of that list nonetheless like the average batting for pixar is great like like a mediocre pixar movie is better than most movies that are made yeah, not even um, just animation, just yeah, flat out. Yeah, just flat out, just flat out movies. But yeah, it's just like I'm. I was really, I really felt a lot less convinced by Ed Catmull's own story about Pixar, like two years on, than I was the first time I read it, and and partly that's because it's like okay. I haven't seen it yet, but they put out The Good Dinosaur, which didn't really get great reviews. And then looking at their future movies, it's like, okay, for the next five movies you have planned, four of them are sequels. I think part of this, though, is that there has been a problem with some of those sequels. Because like he talks about like three movies every two years, one of them a sequel, two new properties. Right. They haven't put out a sequel in a while but they've had a bunch of new ones. So I feel like there's been some production bottlenecks with the sequels. Yeah, maybe. Because they had like, what? uh, Brave, Inside Out, The Good Dinosaur. Right, so those those were all new. Yeah. Uh, And then it's going to be uh, Finding Dory is next. Cars 3. Coco, which is their new one. Did you say Cars 3? Cars 3. They're making a Cars 3? Cars 3. <laughs> the thing is with Cars, though, it is a monster merchandise seller. Monster. Yeah, I'm sure it is. and that, But that's also where... You know, it's, it's the same thing with like Mon- Monsters, Inc. Like, I'm sure it's a, that's a pretty good merchandise one as well. And I was just thinking, like, 
when he's talking about, oh, we don't think about the merchandise. It's like, okay, but like here I am Disney sitting does. in, yeah, I'm like <laughs> I'm sitting here in 2016 and knowing that you're going to produce Cars 3. And it's like, I mean, here's, here's the thing. I want to make it really clear. Like there's nothing wrong with a movie studio making money off of merchandising. Right? Like I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But it's a different thing when I'm reading a book about how great Pixar is and how Pixar is different and how I think quite rightly what one of the things that makes them different is not putting an emphasis on this stuff. But now knowing that it feels like we're in a place with Cars 3 and Toy Story 4 that the merchandising really does matter. I don't think Toy Story is a good example because there hasn't been a bad one and I will take another one. Toy Story Three was arguably the best Toy Story movie. Uh, you know, like I don't, I I get it with Cars. I just think the Toy Story One is just like everybody just wants more Toy Story. Yeah, I mean, and now this is this is of course always the problem with movies that you start getting into like the realm of the realm of subjectivity. Yeah, Toy um, Story Twenty Five. <laughs> right. Like, you know, we'll just we'll it'll be there eventually, like Jaws. But so I, I guess like just bringing bringing it back, I think the book is is interesting. Um, but I'm not sold on the second reading that that they have actually solved the problem that they have aimed to solve. Yeah, one of the things that I struggle with in this book is the idea of candor. Um, so basically, we've mentioned it already, but if you know if you haven't read the book, one of the tenets that they believe in is is people being honest to each other and being able to be honest about ramification. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in feedback, you know, and they, they enable that, like they continue to enable that, but like anybody can talk to anyone. You don't have to go through chains of command and they call it candor because truth and honesty and they're two harsh words. Mm-hmm. I just can't get on board with people being completely honest to each other in creative work. I, I, I just can't get on board with it. I, I just can't imagine people being completely honest it just doesn't it just doesn't sit with me there might be a, a, an idea in pixar of people being more honest and mm-hmm. that but i can't imagine someone saying to somebody that they really don't like a piece of work and the majority of people that work at pixar being able to accept that for what it is brush it off and move on it can't work everywhere it just can't because people are humans and they have emotions and their emotions get hurt yeah, but see, that's where I think like that's some of the best stuff in the book is is his harping repeatedly on the idea that in creative work you should not associate yourself with the creative work, right? Maybe like if you live in Pixar, you can do this, but I don't think that this is an easy thing to to do to have people do. Like maybe you know they they talk about it and work on it so much inside of Pixar that it works. But I just struggle to see it like that. This is where I think he is trying to convince the reader of an idea that is not the normal idea. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, and definitely. so, yeah, in, in my experience, in all of my working experience with other people, people are impossible to separate from their ideas. Like someone comes up with a dumb idea for how they want to change the curriculum next quarter and... If you attack that idea, they take it as an attack on mm-hmm. them. And it's like, oh, Christ, like, can we talk about the thing? Like, we're not talking about you. Like, it, it, that is a, a uh, far too prevalent natural human reaction. 
But I think it like that's what I really like in this book is him just repeatedly hammering on this. Um, yeah, this might be my bias of like just mm-hmm. believing it can't be true. <laughs> you know, like because it does. It really, I think anybody that works with creative people can see how far fetched or difficult an idea this seems to be because people do get upset. Yeah, but you can't produce really good stuff if you are associating yourself yeah. with the idea. And mm-hmm. you know, again, with with people I know, like everybody is kind of in agreement that um, you know, like the negative feedback is the feedback that is valuable. Like if you if you are making stuff for the internet and you're making stuff for people to enjoy, like you have to pay attention to negative feedback in the production process. Like it's super super valuable. No matter how much it hurts. Yeah, no matter how much it hurts, because it's going to hurt more when everybody laughs at you. Right? <laughs> like, oh, this thing is terrible. Um, like, it's just, that is just the way that it 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 has to to work. Uh, like, I just think, um, as my friend Derek has said, like, the value of positive feedback trends towards zero. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, you know, when you're talking about someone's work, it's like, okay, you open with like, oh, yeah, I like this. I like this. Right. But very quickly, you get three positive comments in and it's like, okay, but now these positive comments are worthless. And like, let's get down to brass tacks and tell me what's terrible. Yeah. Uh, because like, that's, that's what I really want to know. Like we had a nice little polite opening, but now let's like, let's really get to business. Uh, and so I think a lot of the stuff that he talks about in Pixar with this idea of trying to set up what he calls this brain trust where people are reviewing the movie and trying to evaluate it as a thing separate from the person who has created it and talk about what is the problems with this movie not like what is the problem with your movie i I think that is uh valuable valuable stuff for anybody who works on it on a team in creative work I like I have definitely recommended Creativity Inc. to a lot of people and seems to get interesting feedback from people saying like, oh, yes, this is quite valuable to think about, like really try hard to make it explicit in feedback sessions that we are discussing yeah. the thing. We're not discussing the the people. And like that is that is the most important thing that you can do. But I still just like the little asterisk in my brain about this is it still just falls back about like. The most important thing, though, is that you have good people on that brain trust. Like, there's there's no... He talks about systems and all the rest of it. It's like, yes, that's that's useful. But, like, ultimately, you need some really good people on that brain trust. Like, that is the thing that makes it work. And that's that's what I wonder about, like, Pixar trying to put in systems for the future. It's like, okay, yes. But what happens when those original teams are are no longer there? Like hey, your he brain talks trust about the works. growth of the brain trust, though. So the, the yeah. brain trust is a group inside of Pixar of that it ranges across the company of people that seem to have a real good grasp on developing stories. Mm-hmm. And these people get together and they review the work that's being produced and help unstick a movie. Um, mm-hmm. Or they maybe help develop a story that isn't working, or can those you know that that really aren't working? Uh, they offer candid feedback to each other, um, and as as he says, sometimes the brain trust doesn't necessarily fix a problem, but it might highlight something that isn't working. Mm-hmm. This is the best thing for me to take away from the book, and I can't remember where I first heard this, but. It, 
in the internet circles that I have run in in the past, there has always been a phrase of your board of directors, which I've mm-hmm. always really latched on to. It's like a group of people that you think are important to you and that you value their opinions, that you trust and get feedback from and uh, use to help further your work. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a, a thought in my mind of the people who I will send work to to get feedback. Um, but what I've been thinking about is how could Relay FM be more like Pixar? Amen high, Mike. And, uh, no, but like from a, a structure perspective. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to like distill what they are and distill what we are and seeing how there are similarities in that it's like a production company that helps produce and grow different properties. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's what I've tried to like take it right down to the very basics and then try and think about it from there. So like I'm thinking if we, because we don't really do this so much, let's say we wanted to create a, sh- a new show. Um, we don't really go very deep into like somebody has an idea and then we like really develop it. Like there mm-hmm. is an element of it, but I mean like months of work and like month, you know, pilots and then we scrap the idea and we start over like th- that, like real intense work doesn't really happen. And I don't know anybody uh, that does what I do that really looks at it in that way. Mm-hmm. So I wonder like what the value of something like that would be and having a group of people that would work on a new project together like that and not even that they're necessarily involved in the production but involved in like the judging and development of it. I just think like how interesting that could be. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I, it's now rattling around in my brain a lot is like this brain trust idea helping develop and produce a show and what that could look like. Um, and I think it could be quite an ambitious project to work on. So like a, like a brain trust for podcasts is what yeah. you're thinking. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. So I don't know. It's like, it's just something that's been rattling around in my brain. It's like, Hey, how could we try and think more like that? Mm-hmm. Like, Cause you know, it's, it's very different, but when really kind of just stripped back to its essentials, not crazily different in what mm-hmm. the businesses do. Mm-hmm. Pixar works very differently to my old company. Uh, the idea of honesty, trust, people making themselves accountable, being respectful of time, not living in fear, and an actual desire to teach people, not just to tick boxes. Those things are all the complete opposite of the environment that I have worked in and you know environments that I know other people have worked in. Mm-hmm. And... I'm sure that Pixar isn't perfect, but it really feels like they try their best to create a company that tries to do its best for people. Mm-hmm. I've really felt that. Yeah, it is. It is definitely. It definitely comes through that that is that is the case in the book. That like they they want to create an environment where people can try to achieve their best like i think that i think that is that is pretty obvious from the way the book is written mm-hmm. that 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 is that is what their their goal is you know like like i i uh i like the part where they talk about um the pixar shorts that they put together mm-hmm. as an example of like somebody has an idea like let's just let's just let them go with it like some just go ahead and produce a short and how they very consciously don't think of those shorts as 
commercial endeavors they tried to didn't they like they yeah. tried to think oh this could be a way to help develop our technology and then realize very quickly that they don't do that they don't help at all they just cost yeah. money and don't do anything right they just they just cost money and time and people and yeah it's resources. like there's there's no line on a spreadsheet which justifies those shorts but that they have some some ambiguous, difficult to pin down feeling that allowing people to work on those short creative projects is worthwhile. And so they do it, even though there is no business justification for it whatsoever. I think like like that is a that is precisely the kind of thing that I think is a great sign from a company and would would for me be in the future like a huge red flag if Pixar ever stopped doing shorts. Mm-hmm. Be like, hmm, OK, yeah, that's a. That's a big, fat, slow fish in a barrel to shoot if you are a bean counter. Yeah. Uh, like, that's the obvious thing to shoot. And so, like, its absence would be quite notable if they ever if they ever stopped doing that. It's like he says at one point, kind of the idea of, like, you can measure things, but be okay with the fact that you can't completely measure everything. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those things. Yes, without a doubt. That's, that, is, that, is definitely, that is definitely the case. <laughs> My favorite part of the book is the part i think it's like part four which is the disney pixar merger and Mm -hmm. because what it does is throughout the whole book they're talking about the things that they do and the things that they believe in and how they think that the things that they do can help build a great company and then this was the case study Mm -hmm. catmull and lassiter had to go into disney and make disney work more like pixar Mm -hmm. and see if it helped and it did Mm. yeah yeah there i think it's it's pretty easy to say that that the uh it's the flat out proof for his thesis right yeah and it also has the like the interesting mirror of almost like a reverse merger in the same way that apple bought next and it's like yeah but did you like maybe next took over apple exactly i mean and who was responsible (laughs) for both of those yeah it's it's like steve jobs like oh hi steve jobs showing up again like this Mm -hmm. exact same maneuver and there is definitely a, a feeling of like did Disney buy Pixar? Like, legally, yes, but it certainly feels like Disney has been very Pixarified. Yeah, it's why it's a merger and not an acquisition. Yeah. You know, they the the smaller companies leaders came in and run the new team. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting to see. Uh it's interesting to see. But it also does, uh, like, give this this funny feeling of, like, is Pixar as ahead as they used to be? Like, well, maybe not. But it's also, like, entirely their fault in some ways with Disney. Like, yeah. oh, Disney seems to be making much better stuff uh, than they used to. Um, you know, getting out of the wilderness finally with their ownership of Pixar. So i got to say, like, I really enjoyed this book. I enjoyed it from an entertainment perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I found it very, very interesting just to hear the story. But there were things in it that really I have pulled out, like the idea of the brain trust and thinking about mm-hmm. what that looks like for me and the idea of thinking about people with talent, um, thinking about giving people the ability to do work. Like there are a lot of things in this book that really I think I'm going to put a lot more thought into. Um, and there are still things from Emith that I think about, though, you know, genuinely. Mm-hmm. And there are still things that we need to do and want to do for our business that would spoken about in that book there is benefit in these books and i hope that we're able to distill these down for people if they don't want to take the time to listen to these 12 hour books i have to say one of the biggest things for me though from this is pixar 
has now joined the very small group of companies that I would take a job at. I don't think I would. there's a job for me at Pixar, but listening to their culture and the way that they work, like I could, I could work in that. I could work in that culture. That's high praise indeed. What are the other companies on that list? Cards Against Humanity. Okay. And Field Notes. And Field Notes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That, that seems... That seems a very Mike list of mm-hmm. places that uh, places that he would he would work. Yeah. <laughs> like I think people would say like Apple. I don't know if I could do it. No, God, who would want to work at Apple? I don't know if I could do it. I don't know yeah. if I would uh, want to be as quiet as they would want yeah. me to be. <laughs> Too much pressure, major secrecy. Like I'm very I'm very grateful for all the people who do work at Apple, but man, yes. I think like that's uh that's a that's a tough path perhaps in 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 life. <laughs> I uh, I would not take a job at Pixar. Okay. I would I would do voice work for Pixar, <laughs> but I would never I would never take a job at Pixar. I don't think uh, that would that would be what I would do. Like I'm I'm pretty happy with my my one man totally unscalable, <laughs> frustrating in some ways, but uh, incredibly liberating in other ways. Business. There's just a couple of of um, final points. Just looking through looking through my notes some of which were double highlighted from me from two years ago and me from now. One of the things which is a, a point often uh, reiterated in creative work, but I think is always always useful to emphasize, is uh, Ed Catmull talks about the baby, like the ugly baby, and how the early drafts of all creative work are horrifying. Uh, mm-hmm. Like they're not, they're not good to look at. Uh, you know, that they take a lot of they take a lot of work to go through, and perhaps one of the things that I liked the best in the book was him going through th- what some of the movies yes. looked like before they became the movie. So valuable, yeah. And I think Up was a great example of that, where he goes through Up a couple a of versions. <laughs> yeah, it's like the you know, it's like the the first the first version was all about like a magical ostrich, and it's like what, yeah. like okay. Uh, but but they go through like here were the three or four iterations of up before we settled on on what the eventual story would be and the Monsters Inc as well was really interesting for that yeah M- Monsters Inc was was essentially like like the delusions of a paranoid schizophrenic uh-huh. like that like that was that was draft one of Monsters Inc I feel like the idea for Inside Out came from that original draft of Monsters Inc. Yeah, you could maybe you could maybe see like a lineage yeah. uh, between those two, but so like, then I, the monsters die. It's like how so like they are, this guy can see monsters and yeah. they are like his feelings and his emotions and his problems following yeah. him around as monsters, and then the the idea at the end of the movie is he feels better, his life gets better, and the monsters go away. And it's like I can't. So they're killing the monsters, which is what the kids would relate to because I'm sure they'd be fun looking monsters. Right, yeah, it's, it's like I don't understand how how you could ever think that this was going to work, but but like that is the whole point of it is that when you go through the first drafts, when you are creating something, it's not always obvious that a thing is terrible. Like, but it doesn't matter. Like, just get the idea out, and then we'll just we'll just work on this. And and so you know they talk about how it's like, ah, oh, we like the monsters, we don't really like the main character. Like, what can we do with the monsters? And and they go through all these different variations of like, oh, maybe we can have this character called Boo, and she's like a she's yep. like a, a angry teenager. And it's like, oh no, it's better if she's a toddler. Like, I think it's just useful to see some examples of how things change like how they go from being awful to how they go to being better like if you do any kind of creative work 
it's always useful to hear that kind of stuff, to be like, wow, it was terrible in the beginning. This makes me feel better about my terrible first version of, of whatever it is that I'm working on. So, you know, his his version of this is called, uh, you know, the ugly baby, that, that this is the idea that like they're all ugly in the beginning. Some of them will grow up to be great, but not all of them. And um, the other the other thing which really struck out to me in in this in this reading of it which didn't strike me so much the first time was his flip side of the ugly baby is what he calls the beast and he talks about feeding the beast where like you as a company end up creating this pressure for you to keep producing stuff and he talks about how like you start having all of these fixed costs like you have employees and you have buildings and you have electrical bills and all of this is the beast that will just eat you alive unless you keep producing stuff and i think like there's a very interesting section where he talks about from his perspective it was partly like the beast that ate up disney that they became very concerned about like we have to just constantly keep pushing movies out and that like the 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 beast is this thing which if you will let it will try to like chain you to an assembly line schedule of like we've got to have a movie out every six months like go 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 because we have all these animators and we have to pay them and i thought like it's it's a really interesting thing to keep in mind and obviously as a person who's not super fan of schedules like i i uh, align with that idea very much but it particularly caught me this time because at least in my own personal experiences like I am aware that you know have, having been self-employed for four years now that I have slowly but surely built up more of my own beast than I had even the first time I read this book where I was like oh yeah the beast okay whatever this is like an interesting idea but now I really feel this idea of like oh god I do have fixed costs like and I do have people that I work with who I pay and like I have these expenses with like an assistant and with lawyers and with stock footage and like this office that I'm renting and like all of this kind of stuff and that was just like it was useful to read that and just keep in mind like with many of these books the utility is putting a word to a thing it's useful to have this idea of like the beast and you have to keep the beast at bay like it's it's provides some motivation but you you can't let it become the controlling factor and you can't let it like chain you into the like tricking you into just producing stuff just to get something out the door so that you have money coming in to pay your fixed costs. Because uh, as he points out, like if you get into that cycle, the more successful you are, like the bigger the beast will get, like the more expenses you'll start incurring, which then just pushes you to produce even more low quality stuff just to get things out the door. So uh, yeah, it's it's uh, especially in the last couple months, which have been unusually expensive for me. Like that really uh, that really struck home in the uh, in the second reading of the book. So last time we told you not to read Emo Revisited, um, and I maintain begging you not to. Um, I don't but I would recommend people read this book. I think it's very interesting. I think there's stuff that you should listen to. We didn't, I don't even think we covered every, all of the lessons. We definitely didn't cover all of the lessons that are in this book. There might be things that resonate with you more than they did with me and Gray. Um, I, I, I recommend reading Creativity Inc. Yeah, I'm going to definitely second recommend the book. 
Uh, as I mentioned, like there were things I didn't like as much the second time around. Uh, small, small nitpick. I really don't like the uh, the narrator for the audiobook. I hate the narrator. Oh man. Okay, can we talk about that for just a split second? Then? Yeah, he's because... not as bad as our previous narrator, but I just I don't like I don't like his voice. I don't like the way it sounds. I don't know what Ed Catmull sounds like. I have no idea. But the narrator is like, <sighs> okay. So I kept having this feeling that the the narrator is basically like an over-enthusiastic grandpa who's telling you stories that should be interesting, but it's his very enthusiasm and the way he is emphasizing stuff that makes it uninteresting. So it's like, oh, you're telling me stories from about when you used to work with Walt Disney in the 1920s, grandpa, but like your over, I don't know, over-friendly way is just like killing any interest in this story. Like there's one point where like, the author is is reading about like a car crash that Ed Catmull was in. It's like you can't use the same voice, the same like super over friendly old man voice to do this part of the story. It's just like I'm not a fan, not a fan of the of the narrator for the audiobook. So maybe I would read this. I know you don't read books, Mike, but I read it the first time. Didn't like the uh, didn't like the narrator for the, the audiobook. Um I think it does suffer a little bit of what I think of as the um the DVD extra problem where everyone is always talking about how great everybody else is to work with. And so there are, there are many things which just irritate me in the book where it's like, Ed Catmull, I cannot read another description where you are talking about how amazing and ingenious and bold the idea for this next movie is like, I can't deal with that anymore, man. Like there's just too much of it. So that kind of grated on me after a while, but those things aside, I have recommended this book uh, many times over the years since I first read it. And uh, for anybody working on a team, I would definitely continue to recommend it. So Creativity Inc., check it out. 